wonderful to be here. Uh, I, I am delighted. I, I want to say this. I, I, am a, I believe I am a friend to this church. But more than that, I carry the heart of a father towards this church. I'm, I'm not a father to this church. I, I, I can never make a statement as bold as that. But I want to tell you something. From, from in my heart, when I think about this church, when I think about this couple, the elders, the people that I know in this church, I carry the heart of a father. Does that make sense? So you can be a father without being the father. Does it, you, you do not? There's, there are many people that are fathers to me, but they're not my father. And so I'm not claiming anything unduly in this church, but just want to let you know the heart that I carry for you. We pray for you. We pray for this couple. We pray for your team, and we participate and partner with as much as we can in, in the life of this church with you guys. I, I want to share something with you this morning that I trust is going to be helpful. But before I even go there, you know, I brought a bicycle wheel with me this morning. Some people pointed out that it would probably be quicker to ride my bicycle yeah, if I had both wheels. But uh, th this is going to be an illustration for us this morning. And, and I hope that uh, it's going to be helpful for you, especially in the light of, of, of what Mark just told us. So th this, this wheel has several components. And I want to say this. I, I, I love bicycles. I love anything with two wheels. Uh, I am extremely at peace and worshipful when I'm doing 74 and a half miles an hour on my Harley. <laughs> but, uh, but I also do ride a bicycle for exercise. And I, and I want to tell you this. That, that when, when I get on a bicycle in the morning, uh, Sandy laughs at me because I, I feel the same joy every morning when I get on my bicycle as I did the first day I learned to ride a bicycle. It's an, it's an amazing thing to be on two wheels. And so the, the, I've had this fascination with bicycles for forever. And so the, this wheel has several components to it. Obviously, you've got the rubber around the outside, the tire, which allows you to get some grip. If that was just steel there, you wouldn't get anywhere near that lean angle. You have the rim, which is uh, the, what allows this thing to stay tensioned. And then you have these spokes, and that's what we're going to focus on a little bit this morning. If we can, I'm going to illustrate the hub as Jesus. And if you've heard me preach, you've heard me use this little illustration, that we have to start with Christology. Everything we do must start with Christ. Does that make sense? So it starts with Jesus. So when we look at how we pattern our churches, how we pattern ministry, and how we pattern our lives, it should look like this. Christology missiology, ecclesiology. Okay? So, we start with Jesus. Jesus points us to the mission, and the mission will shape the church. Does that make sense? And if we get that wrong, if we get that in, in any incorrect order, if we like, it's all about the mission, well then I'm telling you, we can miss Jesus. Right? When, when the Pharisees asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment? He made a very, very, uh, very, very uh, strong statement. The most important commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God. See, for years the church sent people on mission that loved people and loved the nations. But I'm telling you now, the primary 
qualification for a missionary or a pastor or an evangelist or a prophet or anything else. A worship leader must be that that person loves the Lord their God above all and primary. Does that make sense? Jesus will focus us on the mission and the mission will allow us to shape the church. Does that make sense? If we start with the church, we miss out on a whole lot of those things. Okay, so we're going to say this. The hub is Jesus. It all comes from Him. It all revolves around Him. It's all for Him. It's all pointed to Him. It all points away from Him. Does that make sense? Okay, the spokes are interesting. There's a scientific thing with the spokes. And that is this, that we all heading down the road of life, right? Whether that's in the life of a church or in, or in our lives personally. We can all be heading down the road and we can all every now and then hit a bump, right? So, so let me explain something to you. When this thing hits, there's a little bit of tension in the, in the rubber, but what actually happens is the spoke that is closest to the bump transfers that tension to the hub and the hub transfers it out to all the other spokes. That's why it's important to make sure these spokes are adjusted. Okay? So here's, so here's a, a cool thing for us to understand. If, if, that, if that wheel hits there, and that's the spoke that took the brunt, let me ask you a question. In the light of what I just explained to you, which is the most important spoke? Not any single one of them. They all become important the minute we hit a bump in the road. Does that make sense? So now let me tell you something. When, when Christ speaks about the body of Christ through Paul, 1 Corinthians, and he says this, no part is more important than the other part. But he also goes on to say this, when one part is hurt, donk, we all feel it, and we all pick up that strain and that tension. That's the beauty of belonging to a church. That is the absolute beauty. We have started referring to our church, not, uh, not, not outside of the name of our church, but, but we love this thing of beautiful community. The church is a beautiful community. And we've got some weirdos. And the funny thing is, you know, Christian weirdos all blame Jesus. But the truth is, a lot of them were weird before they ever met Jesus. They just carried their weirdness through their relationship with Jesus. But that is family. How many of you have got some weirdos in, in your family? Still your family. You're looking at me going, that's easy for you to say. You're probably the weirdo in your family. I am. I am. Oh. But, but, but that's part of the beauty of this, of this thing and the beauty of what the gospel does for us. Because the gospel gathers us around a community gospel-centered, Christ-saturated, Holy Spirit-inspired community that can stand together, that can celebrate together, that can weep together, that can be there for each other through every bump and every celebration. The church is an incredible thing. It's the one thing that Jesus is coming back for. He's not coming back for Christian education, Christian business. I'm not intentionally step it on any toes. I just seems to come naturally to me. About all that I can hope for when I preach is that I offend everybody equally. 
But Jesus is not coming back for any of those things. Jesus is coming back for His church, His bride. His bride. His beautiful bride without spot, wrinkle, or any other blemish. That's what Jesus is coming back for. And we get to be part of that. It's an incredible privilege, my friends. It's an incredible privilege. So I'm going to ask you this morning, as, as, as somebody that carries a, the heart of a father for you, as Mark and Kara go through this thing with their children, and in some senses, let me just tell you, church, you are going to go through it as a church. You are. Let me tell you, be there for each other. When one hits a bump, all the spokes tension up, and we all go, we're there for you, brother. Right? I'll tell you something. There's a, there's a huge difference. I'm not getting anywhere near my notes. There, there is a huge difference between praying for somebody and praying with somebody. Yeah? Okay, this is me praying. This is me praying for somebody. Lord, I, I pray for Mark and I, I ask that you bless him this morning and, and just be there with him for his family. And this is me praying with somebody. Stand up. Father, I love this man. I pray your favor and your blessing on him and on his family, Lord. Strengthen him and encourage him right now, Father. Impart your Holy Spirit to him by your presence. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You see the difference? By praying for somebody and praying with somebody. Let me encourage you, church. Pray together. Pray with each other. Not just for each other. That takes all that Christian cliche out praying for you brother and most of the time we never do but when we're praying with each other we know we are praying and we know we are standing together and we know we're there for each other you doing okay just praying through something completely unrelated this week, and I just I, this just this, this this prophetic picture came to me. You know, when 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 you when you're going to go fly somewhere, and you're sitting on the runway in your jet, and you're strapped in, and you've gone through all the all the pre-safety. And how much? Uh, what time do you finish now? Great. Um, and and you're sitting there, and the jet's ready to take off, and it's just this gloomy day. It's just raining and. Maybe in Denver it's snowing. But but you're just sitting there. You're just like, oh, it's all yuck down here. Yeah? That jet takes off and it punches through the clouds and there's brilliant sunshine. It's amazing. It's like you've gone to another planet. But 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 here's the point. The sun is still shining. Even when we're sitting on the runway and it's all dark and gloomy and wet and snowy and mucky. and But when we punch through, the sun is still shining. And I want to tell, I, I trust that's a word for somebody this, here this morning. That the sun is shining. No matter what you're going through, Jesus is still on the throne. His will will be done and His kingdom will come. No matter what we go through. And sometimes it takes great effort to get that airplane up there. But once it's up there, it, just, it punches through the clouds and it hits that cruising altitude. They throttle back and they've gone from 70 or 80% power to about 30% power. And they just glide in along in this beautiful sunshine. And suddenly you're looking down 
Welcome to VoiceOver. VoiceOver speaks descriptions of items on the screen and can be used to control the computer using Mr. Shirt, friends, Jesus is on the throne. Mr. Shirt this morning, his will will be done, his kingdom will come. Are you doing okay this morning? Okay, so I, I want to use this bicycle as a quick illustration, this bicycle wheel. And uh, I'm going to give you seven things, hopefully, in the next few minutes. I'm going to tell you about seven things that Jesus said. The cool thing with these seven things is that seven times Jesus said first. Now, I'm, I'm not going to be so bold as to try and prioritize them. Yeah? If Jesus said first seven times, I'm not, I'm not going to say this one is first and this one is second. I'm, I'm, I'm not that bold. Okay? But that's the illustration of the spokes. Jesus said these things, these seven things, first, and so every first is a spoke. Right? Now remember what we said. No spoke is more important than any other one. And so these things, seven times, Jesus says first, We've established that Jesus is the hub, so we're not leaving him out of this equation. I'm just going to tell you what these seven things are. And I think when we align ourselves with the Word of God, there's, there's something that is created in us. We align our lives, our churches. We align things with the Word of God. It's this amazing thing happens. Favor seems to start to follow us. Yeah? So we're going to look at those seven things this morning real quick if we can. Okay, number one. We've touched on this one already. Matthew 22, verse 37 to 38. This is in response to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are saying this, which is the greatest commandment? They're trying to catch Jesus out. They're not asking for help. They're trying to trick him. And so he says this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment. This is the first and greatest commandment. So that's number one, right? Matthew 22, verse 37 to 38. Love the Lord your God is the first and greatest commandment. When, when, when the Bible talks about first, it talks about first in time, number, rank, value, and importance. So when Jesus says first, he's talking about love the Lord your God first in time, before you do anything else, love the Lord your God. In terms of where it's prioritized, it's number one. It's ranked right up there. In terms of value, it is your highest priority. Which we've got to understand this. You see, the opposite of love is not hatred, but apathy. The opposite of love is not, I hate you. The opposite of love is, I don't care. That's the opposite of love. But God so loved the world that He acted, that He sent, that He gave. God didn't love the world so much that he was like, oh, whatever, get on with it. I'm sure you'll figure it out somewhere in the next couple of thousand years. We'd be in some deep yogurt, let me tell you now. The opposite of love is not hatred, but apathy. For God so loved that he gave, he sent. Love stirs. Love lifts. Love causes us to get off the couch and go do something about a situation. The Greek word for love that is used here is agape or agape. And it means this. It's a love of the will. It's a love of the will. It's a love of decision and commitment. Which is different from the love that TV tells us about. Different from the love of the telenovelas. Love is directed by obedience. 
Uh, I'm not setting myself up as a hero here, but I just do want to tell you a story. See, when I first got saved, and, and I got saved out of, a, out of a very rough background, bike clubs and all that goes with that, but, but God, God touched me radically. I got radically saved and radically turned around. God absolutely rocked my world, turned my world right side up, and, and uh, I would never be so bold as to say I've never sinned since that day, but I have never, ever thought of walking away from the Lord. I've never, ever thought of backsliding. I've never, ever thought of taking a step back. It just that God just rocked my world. I was living with a girl. I was engaged to her. And uh, I'm just trying to get to the main point of the story. She had gone away on a business trip. I got saved on a Wednesday night. She came back on Friday and I said, look, uh, we, we can't be living together anymore. Told her what had happened to me. She took off her engagement ring. She said, you choose me or God. Two days of salvation. I said, I've got to go with God on this one. So she walked... And this and this crazy this crazy 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 thing happened, and, I, and I'm and I'm telling you it is crazy, because I, like I said, I, I was I was engaged to her, we were living together, and I I thought as I'm sure she did that we were going to get married, and she walked out, wanted nothing to do with me after I'd made the decision to follow Christ, and this is going to sound crazy, and you can think it's completely weird, but about six weeks later I met Sandy, and. There, there was this, you know. But, but, but here's the thing: as I, as I got to know a little bit, I, I heard God say this to me: "I want you to love this woman. I want you to love this woman." I said, "Okay, Lord," as I have tried to when God speaks to me, and and I did, and I did my best to love her. But, but here was the thing: see, so, so, I, I went to a church in another city, maybe maybe 40 miles away. I was in church there. I'd got saved in that church, and I'd got radically saved. But, but I'd got saved out of, the, out of a biker culture. So every now and then on a Sunday, I think, oh, I'll, go to church. I'll go across there, and I'll go to church there. And if it was a nice day, I rode my bike. And if I rode my bike, I put my biker gear on, which was my leather jacket and my bunny jacket with all the badges and the patch. And I was saved. I just That was what I rode a motorcycle in. And I would walk into that church, and I'm, you know, I mean, that, that was a conservative church, and the pastor would give me an incredibly hard time, and and they would tell Sandy, and and she was on staff in that church. She'd been saved since she was 15. And they would tell Sandy, "You're going to marry a pastor, and that guy's never going to be a pastor." So I don't know what you're doing, wasting your time with that guy. They would tell her that. So so, and and she was on staff. She'd got saved in that church, and and come to spiritual maturity and, and, and those pastors were her spiritual fathers. And so when they were saying, when they were telling her, you can't hang around with this guy, she, she was trying to walk that out. So she'd tell me, listen, this is not going to happen. Don't love you. Don't know what to tell you. This isn't going to happen. So we'd break up. And I'd go to God and I'd ask God, what is the deal here? God would say to me, I want you to love that woman. So I'd love her from a distance as much as I could. It was her birthday. I sent her a card or sent her some flowers. No pressure. Then she'd call me and we'd date again for about another six months and then her, her pastors would give her a hard time and then she'd break up with me again. So let me tell you something. This went on for three and a half years. 
three and a half years this went on and I can remember one time just going home after we'd broken up and I can remember going home and just lying on my bed and just broken hearted and just going God what is going on you told me to love this woman she does not love me and God spoke clearly again and said this I never said she would love you I told you to love her you see that's agape love that's love of will that's love of decision that's love of obedience it's not this warm fluffy thing see love does what love does so when God has asked us and said love the Lord your God that's an act of obedience it's an act of my will and it's an act of my decision and then he says I want you to love your neighbor as yourself I don't have to have warm fuzzy feelings about my neighbor or about my city or about my nation God has asked me to love and in obedience to his lordship I say yes Lord it's not about warm fuzzy feelings not about how I feel on any particular day Gee, if we could only get husbands and wives to do that it's not about that not about how I feel I love you bottom line because God has asked me to and so when I'm not feeling fuzzy and warm what is my option I still have to stand there in the place of my life is submitted to God in the place of his eternal lordship and say yes Lord I will love this woman today even if she's acting like a prickly pear the problem with all these guys that write all these books on marriage, none of them are married to my wife now what's my point in there, we are all individuals we all have our certain things, we all have our moments, we all have our high points we all have our low points and they're all different for each and every single one of us, that's why that word love, agape is an action a will, a decision an act of obedience does that make sense? Uh, I'm, uh, like I said, I was going to try and offend everybody equally, then at least. But, but, but just, you know what? Yeah, people get divorced over this issue. Incompatible differences. Let me tell you something, friends. If you are a man and you are a woman, you have incompatible differences. We, we are two different species. Like we come from two different planets. Sandy and I come from two different cultures. Although we're both South African. I'm from the, the English part and culture and she's from the Afrikaans part and culture. It, it's radically different and in the natural we, we despised each other. But God can take that and so now I laugh at her and I tease her about that and she can laugh at me and tease me about that but there is this thing of agape. Yes Lord, I will love this person that you've put in my life. Not about warm, fuzzy feelings. Not about how I feel in a particular moment. You're doing alright? So first, love the Lord your God. It carries us down onto some other things. Okay, number two. I need to move quickly. So it's number two, but it's still a number one, right? So we're going to give you seven number ones. The notes are going to look great. So the second one is this. Matthew 6, verse 33. Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well see I want to tell you this friends distraction is an absolute tool of the enemy 
It is an absolute tool of the enemy. In military strategy, and I spent six years in the military in South Africa, in military strategy, there is this thing. If you want to defeat them, distract them. If you want to defeat them, distract them. And so let me tell you something. I'm convinced of this, that the, the distraction is one of the key tactics of the enemy. In fact, I think it's one of the most powerful tools in his toolbox because he doesn't have to get us to sin. He just has to get us to be doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And our effectiveness drops off the bottom of the chart. So I think it was Air Florida Flight 90 was coming in to land at the Everglades maybe 20 or 30 years ago now. When I was in the military, I was, I was an aircraft mechanic, and so we studied some of these things. There you go. And so, so Air Florida Flight 90 is coming in, and it's, and it's going to land in Miami. And uh, there's this procedure when an airplane's coming in that they engage the landing gear. Pilot and co-pilot have to acknowledge something, right? So the, co-pilot and the, the pilot and the co-pilot, they both have to look at the panel, and they have to say three green down and locked. Now what that tells you is that the, the undercarriage has come down and it has mechanically engaged. It's not being held there by hydraulic pressure. There's a mechanical engagement and there's a micro switch that makes, right, that then lights up these three lights and it goes three green down and locked, right? And so these guys are coming in, they're on their final approach and they look at each other and they go three green. There's only two green, Right? So they pull up, they circle, and there's a there's there's a book that's just got like you know like a flowchart real real quick, right? So three green. What, what is the first thing to check? The light bulb, right? The undercarriage might be down and engaged, and the bulb is out. Do you call it a bulb? Globe, bulb, bulb. Okay. So, so that's the first thing to do, right? And so, the co-pilot, but they try and change the bulb. They've got a spare bulb, part of the part of the standard operating procedure. They've got a spare bulb. They're trying to change the bulb, and the bulb is sticky. They can't get the bulb out. And while a highly qualified pilot and co-pilot wrestle with a 25 cent bulb. That aircraft loses height, crashes in the Everglades, and every single person on board is killed. When they did the crash investigation, it was the bulb. It amazes me how many times in people's lives they will crash land their lives over the tiniest little thing because they got distracted from the big picture and they got focused on this little 25 cent thing. Seek first the kingdom. Now let me tell you, that thing changed cockpit procedure. Right? Now there's a different procedure. Since that aircraft crashed, they changed cockpit procedure. When I tell you this, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna be amazed. It's brilliant. Okay? What what the cockpit procedure now says is this is that anything goes wrong, the pilot should fly the plane. I mean, that's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, who would have thunk of that? <laughs> huh? So now what happens, let's say the same thing happens, okay? So the plane's coming in on finals, 
three green. You fix the light bulb, I'll fly the plane. Heads up. Isn't that brilliant? But let me tell you, there's something for us to learn in that, my friends. There's something for us to learn in that. That we keep our eyes focused where Jesus wants them focused. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first that thing. Fly the plane. Heads up. Look where you're going. Remember the destiny. Remember the calling. Remember the plan. Remember the purpose. You doing all right? It's brilliant, isn't it? The pilot should fly the plane. I'm from Africa. I'm sure you can hear that. This is not a Mexican accent. Although I look Mexican enough. Sometimes when, you, when I'm watching my boys play soccer, I yell at them in Spanish, and you can just see people just get so confused. <laughs> like, you just told us five minutes ago you were from Central Africa. Now you're yelling at your kid, and you look Mexican, and you're yelling at your kid in Spanish. Orale, mijo, vamonos. Una más, por favor. So, we, uh, I have no idea what I was going to tell Africa. Hey? No, listen, we be here, blinky lights, see what happens. And I, I, I am easily distracted. Sandy will send me to the groceries to buy to, to the grocery store to buy some stuff, and I'll come back with a Harley magazine and a Scooby-Doo lunchbox. And she's like, "Where's the groceries?" I'm like, "Oh, groceries. Okay, I'll go back." Um. So, so yeah, here's the thing. So, so in Africa, there's a lion is a is an incredible predator. African lion. They 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 are huge. You, you've got no idea of the size of a lion unless you've actually seen one in real life. They are absolutely huge. And one of their favorite little tasty snacks is a, is a zebra. You say it, we say zebra. Okay? So, so here's the point, right? Is, is the African bush is completely brown most of the time. And zebras are bright white and shocking black. So those stripes are not for camouflage. Does that make sense? You see a zebra, you can see a zebra for 10 miles on an African plane. Sticks up like a sore thumb. It's not about camouflage. There's a DNA gene in the zebra's brain, right, that when a lion attacks, they don't run in straight lines. Okay? And those stripes and the zebra running like this, the lion cannot pick one zebra to chase. See the distraction of the enemy. So what the lion will do is he'll chase this zebra and another one comes this way and he, cha- and he chases and another one comes and, he's cha- and he goes home hungry. Because those stripes have simply distracted and confused him. One of the super predators in the world, an African lion. Distracted, distracted by the stripes on a zebra and goes home empty-handed. It's exactly what happens to us, friends exactly what happens to us sometimes in our life. We chase this thing and something else, and we chase that thing and something else, and we chase that thing, and at the end of the day, we're exhausted. I mean, people tell me in my church all the time, and I'm sure, you know, that we're so tired. Tired from what? Because that's a real question. Isn't it? Because let me tell you, you can get tired watching too much TV. You really can. You sit up to three or four every morning, binge watching Netflix. You're going to be absolutely exhausted. But you haven't expended yourself on the kingdom. 
When people come in, they're tired. Gee, I'm so tired, I need a break. I ask the question. What are you tired from? Because it's an important question. Because if you're tired from chasing this thing for a little bit and chasing this thing for a little bit and chasing, then you don't need a rest. What you need is focus. You doing okay? I, I can be pastoral, I promise you. See, we've got to develop an appetite for these things. I, I've got a raging sweet tooth. Let me tell you, I've got a sweet tooth like nobody I know. I, 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 can, I can sit down and eat a bar of chocolate. And I'm not talking about a 7-Eleven bar of chocolate. I'm talking about a Costco bar of chocolate. I can sit down and eat that thing and wash it down with a two-liter Coke and be, uh, I'm like, that was a great meal for me. Sugar's a food group. Huh? So, so but, but, but here's the thing. See, a, a little while ago, Mark was there for me and praying for me through this time. I, I had to have major surgery on my stomach. And, and every now and then you have one of those like life-challenging events that causes you just to reevaluate some stuff a little bit. And so... Uh, I mean, people would offer me stuff, and I would say, nah, that looks a bit healthy. You know? But let me tell you, once I had my stomach surgery, you realize something. You realize, man, I'm going to have to change my appetite. I'm going to have to change some things. If I don't want to have that surgery again in a couple of years, I'm going to have to change some things. I'm going to develop an appetite. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, seek first the kingdom of God. He's asking us to develop an appetite for the things of God. And what I found distasteful before, suddenly I love. Right? I, I can tell you, I drank two liters of Coke a day for probably for 30 years. And, and I was helping a guy move one time in California and it was super hot. And he said, do you want something to drink? And I'm like, yeah, I'll grab a Coke. And he's like, all I've got is water. No joke. I drank a bottle of water like this. I had to call Sandy to come drive me home. I was nauseous, I was sick, I was dizzy. I'm not even joking. <laughs> now I drink water all the time. You have to develop an appetite. And that's what Jesus is saying. When he's saying, seek first the kingdom of God. He's saying, seek that. That is healthy for you. Seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Does that make sense for you this morning? I'm going to cut some of those things out. And get where we need to be. Discipline, I'm convinced, is one of the most, it's one of the most valued things. When the Bible says God has not given us a spirit of, of fear, uh, help me out, no. power of love and a sound mind. Actually, the right translation there is self-discipline. God has given us a spirit of self-discipline. And nobody should have to check on you whether you're doing your devotional time. Nobody should have to check on you whether you're seeking the Lord with all your heart. That's just something you have to develop. Okay, number three. Good enough. Number three. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. First, be reconciled. See, here's the thing with forgiveness, friends. Uh, here's, the thing with, here's the thing with forgiveness. See, we all want to be right. But, but if we're going to understand this and we're going to understand Jesus is the hub, we're going to understand this, that Jesus is always our primary example. He's always our primary example in all things. And, and, and here's the thing. 
Jesus was right. He was in heaven in perfect unity with his Father, in perfect relationship with his Father. He was right, but he chose to be reconciled. And in choosing to be reconciled, he came to earth, took on the form of a man, went to the cross, and died in our place. And said those incredible words on the cross, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do. You see, when we choose being right over being reconciled, we're not choosing Jesus' way. You're holding unforgiveness in your heart. It's like drinking poison, waiting for the other person to die. That's what it is. You're hoping the other person's going to get sick. Most of the time, they don't even know they offended you. Most of the time, they don't even know they did anything wrong. I had a kid leave, leave a church that I was at in South Africa. He got offended by something I said from the pulpit that I never knew was offensive. I know you found that hard this morning, but I, I, I said something and he got so offended. Now, this is no joke. I'm not, not even exaggerating this. He, he left the church and went and joined a cult and lived on this little cult community farm for five years. And by the grace of God, God reached out to him again, spoke to him again, and he came back to the church, and he, and he came and told me his whole story and said this. He said, I'm, I'm so sorry. I blamed you for all of the stuff that I went through, and actually the problem was mine. And I had no idea it had ever happened. See, first be reconciled. First be reconciled. Choose reconciliation as an absolute priority in time, value, and importance. If Jesus, once again, had chosen to be right and said, I'm right, I'm in heaven, you work it out, once again, we'd be in some deep yogurt. But he didn't. He chose reconciliation. He chose that forgiveness, which is instant and complete. See, I'm glad I don't have to crawl on the ground and prove anything because my, my forgiveness and my salvation is instantaneous and it is complete every single time every single time even low grade low grade unforgiveness well I've forgiven you Mark but I'm still a bit resentful even that the enemy will use that friends the enemy will use that you know what happens if you over-tighten one of these spokes? If you over-tighten, you can over-tighten this spoke. If you over-tighten it, and this spoke here we're talking about, at the top of the wheel, and you hit a bump there, that spoke will snap. You see, when we hold those things, when we hold unforgiveness, we create a tension inside ourselves. And then one little thing happens, and we snap. And it wasn't even the little thing. It was something that happened years ago that we didn't deal with. First, go and be reconciled. First, go and be reconciled. But listen, can I, can I, can I help you this morning? Some stuff you just need to grow up and get over it. I don't need a four-hour conversation about every little thing. And neither do you. Let's be honest. You know, if, if somebody forgot to greet you this morning, yeah, Somebody forgot to greet you, or Mark forgot your name. He's got a few things on his mind. 
It just has to be that. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't need to have a four-hour conversation. Did you not see me? He's leading the meeting, leading people. Can we just give each other the benefit of the doubt? Maybe he was having a bad day. Anybody can have a bad day. Look at my face. I have a few. (laughs) Ask my wife and my family. I have a few bad days every now and then. Can I just tell you a funny story just so you know this is... So, so my wife got, gets jamba juice and I get like either the protein or the immunity boost and she, I don't even know if they do it anymore jamba, this is a while ago so she gets the fem boost right? and then she can't finish her drink this is years ago in California so she's yeah baby do you want to finish it I'm like no that's got the fem boost in it I ain't drinking that so I said this to her I said I'll drink that thing I'll start getting moody three days a month no joke, like this. She goes, three days a month. That would be an improvement. <laughs> I, I want to tell you, friends, don't hold these things. Don't hold these things. Forgiveness is God's mechanism for us to live free and healed and whole and make sure that everybody around us lives free and healed and whole. We cannot hold unforgiveness. We cannot hold resentment. It'll tighten us up, and then one little bump, and that thing snaps. You know when the lion does get the zebra? Zebra. You know when the lion does get the zebra? When he can separate one. Then that thing can run all those zigzags. He can stay focused on it. If he can just separate one from the herd. Let me tell you, isolated Christians are in grave danger. Isolated Christians, but most of the time, we choose to isolate ourselves. Something happened, and I just take that step back. And then something else happens, and I take just another step back. And sooner or later, I'm outside of that community. I'm outside of that beautiful community. I've either I've tensioned up too much, and then I'm out. First be reconciled, my friends. First be reconciled. Not about being right about being reconciled. Can I just give you the other four quickly? Because clearly I'm not going to finish. Okay, number four, I think. Is that right? Is it number four? Matthew 7 verse 5, you hypocrites. That's strong language, huh? First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, what that's about is not comparing ourselves with ourselves. That's what that scripture is about. This is the standard. This is the standard. And it's so easy for us to do that. It's so easy for us to compare ourselves with ourselves. It's so easy for us to look across the aisle and say, well, you know what, compared to their marriage, we're actually doing okay. But there's nowhere that you can find in this scripture where their marriage is the standard. This Bible proclaims a standard. Does that make sense? Well, you know, compared to that guy, I'm actually doing all right. No, nobody ever asked you to compare to that guy. If you're going to compare to a guy, Jesus is the guy. And then none of us is doing okay. <laughs> right? This is the standard. And people accuse me of this all the time. TK, you're raising the bar. I'm not raising the bar. I don't have that authority. All I can do is tell you where the bar is. Right? Let's not compare ourselves to ourselves. We don't get into comparison, competition, or anything like that. It leads to criticism. Number five, John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked, 
for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, Peace be with you. Acts 2.42 speaks about don't neglect the gathering, don't neglect the fellowship. Let me tell you, friends, do not neglect church. It's part of God's plan for us that God puts us in a family. The Bible tells us that in the book of Psalms, God sets the lonely in families. God sets the lonely in beautiful communities where we can all tension each other up, we can all bear each other's burdens, we can all come together, we can all love together and all celebrate together. Don't neglect it, my friends. This is what the church does for us. Creates fellowship, restores dignity and significance, undermines individualism, undoes selfishness, recovers generosity, promotes service, exposes us to the big picture, and ultimately turns our hearts towards Him in worship. Number six, I think. Blind Pharisee, Matthew 23, verse 26. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish. Then the outside also will be clean. It's interesting, Exodus 25, verse 11, when they, when they make in the ark, which is what in the Old Testament carried the glory of God. In the New Testament, temple courts and torn from top to bottom. The glory of God is now housed in the hearts of men, women, and children everywhere, right? So when they made, when they made the ark, this was the, this was the instruction, overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out. Let me tell you, the Holy Spirit wants to overlay our lives and inlay our lives with pure gold. Number seven, I'm going quickly so we can finish on time. Number seven, Matthew 12, verse 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob the house. The spiritual warfare is about the victory that is already found in Jesus. Jesus has already bound the strong man. Jesus has already won the victory. It's an incredible thing for us to understand this thing, that there is a fight, there is a battle going on every day. There is a battle going on every day. But we fight from victory, not for victory. The victory has already been decided. Ultimately, the victory has already been decided. Recognize who Jesus is and what he has already done. So, the enemy's tactic is, is the enemy's tactic is, is quite, quite simple. And it talks about this. It talks about don't give the enemy a foothold. You see, the problem with that is that a foothold starts first with a toehold, right? Come up here, Mark. Can I use you quickly for a demonstration? So, so a toehold... I'm sorry, but not, I don't want to be rough with you. You're bigger than me, so I guess you can take that, right? But you see, here's the thing. Toehold. Can you see that? Right? Toehold becomes a foothold, right? A foothold becomes a stronghold, a stranglehold, and a stranglehold becomes a stronghold. It starts with this little thing. Can you see that? It starts with this little thing. But the Bible says this. It says, thanks, it says, leave no room for the enemy. Leave no room for the enemy. I'll tell you a dreadful story. A buddy of mine had a, um, had a kid was left with a maid in South Africa and drowned in the pool. Right? Devastation. Absolute devastation. Now, 
Pools are a common thing in South Africa. 90% of people have got pools in their backyard. Right? Absolute devastation. This is what Sandy and I did for years until we left South Africa. Every one of our kids that got, every one of our friends that got pregnant, if they had a pool, we went and bought them a safety net and had it installed. Didn't even ask. You want a safety net? Not a question. Here's the thing. I'm not going to give the enemy a toehold. Does that make sense? Don't give the enemy a toehold. It means this. Leave no room for the enemy. Leave no room. That's our primary thing in spiritual warfare. It's far harder to defeat the enemy when he's got you in a stranglehold or a stronghold than it is to say, well, hang on a minute. I'm just going to put my foot back so you don't get a toehold. 